0: So we're going to—I'll tell you. Well, let's have a reading. Let's read from the scriptures, from Hebrews chapter seven and verse twenty-five. We're actually going to be in Exodus all the time, but just Hebrews seven from verse twenty-five will just give us the framework for why we're going to do lots of Exodus work um, for the for the next three the three talks that I do. So it's Hebrews seven from verse twenty-five. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And like the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. Oh, and then carry on into chapter 8 for a few verses. Now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Well, that'll do for now. We'll, uh, that just gives us why we're going to study the things we're going to study. Look, no, it's the best time to be doing evangelism in Britain and Europe for more than a thousand years, isn't it? So easily, we're all saying, I know we all think it is the best time, um, because it's like taking the gospel to genuinely unreached people. It's got that sort of energy about it. We haven't had that sort of environment for a thousand years. We are the lucky ones who get to really go at it in that way. It's, I guess, the Apostle Paul always wanted that sort of territory. We've got it. It's brilliant. Um, so when we uh, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ today... We get to address the really big questions about life, the universe, everything. Who we are, why we are, what's going on, how do you fix things. Those really big questions are in play. People don't understand the world. What's gone wrong with the world? And the most basic questions of identity. Who am I? What am I? What's the point of life? Well, to be honest, I don't even know those questions are even asked anymore. People don't even think there's answers to those questions. Actually, I don't think people ask those questions. There's just the assumption that there aren't any answers. Just come up with whatever you've got. Jude verse 6 tells us that Jesus delivered his people out of Egypt. That ancient church had been caught up in a pagan culture for 400 years indoctrinated in the mythology and worldview of Egyptian gods, cult of death, pyramids, power of magicians. That was the world for 400 years. And then Jesus enacted a mighty judgment on Egypt and took his ancient church through the Red Sea. And that, according to the Apostle Paul, going through the Red Sea was like a baptism, dying to the old life, of Egypt and coming to this new resurrection life with him in the wilderness. And it took them a long time to realise life in the wilderness with Jesus is better than a luxury life without him. But that's, that was that. Anyway, that's another time. He took them to Mount Sinai to meet with this unseen father hidden in thick darkness and lightning and clouds of heaven. When they arrived... At Sinai, this divine angel of the Lord told them that they were going to be a kingdom of evangelists. A kingdom of priests. He said, that's why I'm doing this. I need a kingdom of evangelists. A community of three million, I imagine, that sort of number, isn't it? Evangelists to reach all the nations of the world. They were going to be trained and equipped to preach the gospel to everybody, everywhere, show it off to the world, showcase the whole thing, explain the whole thing. How could they do that? How could they communicate so much to a world that knew so little? How is that possible? We, they think of the ignorance and superstition, just of the Egyptian Empire they'd escaped from, and that was Egypt had had a certain amount of encounter where You know, we've got Joseph and all that stuff. What about other nations? And the urgent need for them to be profoundly discipled in doing this job, that they themselves, this ancient church, needed some sort of profound instruction in what they're doing to evangelise the world, to tell the whole world about the gospel of Christ. They themselves obviously needed profound discipleship training because... That ancient church literally turned to the worship of Satan when Moses was delayed up the mountain. That was the people he said. Now you're going to be a kingdom of evangelists. And then Moses is delayed for a little time and they literally started worshipping Satan. It was very clear. They needed to go to school first. They needed a school of evangelism seriously if they were going to do what the very first thing he said this is about you being a kingdom of priests to the world and then all that happened right they had to go to school they needed a schoolmaster who could instruct them in the truth of christ So that they, in turn, would be able to lead all nations to the Lord Jesus Christ. But how? How? In this world of pagan religions and ignorance, one that obviously feels we can resonate with that challenge, how could the ancient church explain the living God, the Trinity, the need for a mediator, the need for a divine lamb to make atonement through blood sacrifice. The need for the washing of a new birth and a church family. All to enter into the most holy place of the highest heaven. In in your prayer you, you mentioned lots of that terminology and I was like, yeah, all that. How could they know that in such a way that they could communicate that to all the nations of the world. Someone said to me, well, they didn't need to know all that. They didn't need to know all that. They just had to. And I said, what? What if that isn't the gospel? What is that they should just believe in God or something? Well, that absolute nonsense. There were plenty of people who believed in God. This is absolute nonsense. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ, atonement, blood sacrifice, entering into the most... That's the gospel. And you can't just give some sort of rubbish that isn't going to save anybody. No, how could anybody ever ascend the hill of the Lord to get through the divine fire? You know, that divine fire at the end of Genesis 3 to prevent the way in. We are exiled. There is no way back... Who's going to get through that? That's a gospel question. Who can get into the dwelling of the Lord Almighty to ascend above the angels to the throne of the divine emperor? How could the ancient church understand all these things, especially given they've been in pagan Egypt? And how were they going to in turn explain that? to an entire world out there, all the different continents in the world with all the different cultures, challenges. How? Now, obviously, we live in a similar world. And just as that ancient church had to cope with the problem that some of the church leaders and some of the church members were actually getting involved in devil worship, we might say, yeah, us too. Maybe some aspects of church today, goes devilish. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Is that too controversial to say? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Oh, no, okay. Well, I've said it now, so there we go. So uh, just as that ancient church had to go down to fundamentals, learning from a schoolmaster about the fundamentals of truth of the universe. So we need to do that, learning from this scripture schoolmaster in the ancient scriptures, who can show who the Lord Jesus Christ really is, what he's done. And it does it not in abstract terms. What's so powerful about this? And I love the fact that when, in John 5, 46, Jesus says, you're never going to understand me till you first understand Moses. That verse changed my life because that was why I was, trying, I was trying to explain all this stuff to people who didn't have any, didn't get it at all, and from a totally different cultures, backgrounds, continents, everything. John 5, 46, you can't understand me, says Jesus, unless you understand Moses. So I thought, right, that is what I've got to do to get that so that then I can explain, it. well, first of all, so I can understand Jesus properly, then explain him. And what's so powerful about the example that's shown is what the Lord God does and he gives the is he's saying, you need to make a, a visual model. Make something that people can see and touch, feel, handle. Something that's visible to them. So they said, okay, and, and then in the book of Exodus, you, you know how it goes, the, the instructions are given twice. First, he says, and then you're reading it through, you go, yeah, I've read all that, but you know what, if you ever had that experience, you read it through, and you get the instructions and the Lord says to Moses, this is how you build it. And then Moses builds it and he gives you the instructions all over again. That's a bit much. The was like, no, nah, it isn't. Because I want you to pay attention. I want you to get this stuff. Then you kind of get all the instructions again when they make a brick and mortar version, isn't it? Temple. You get this stuff over and over again in the Bible, the instructions for building this multimedia model to understand reality, and of course, um, that's what Exodus is about. And then Leviticus is what to do with that building, what to do with that multimedia model of reality once they built it. And he did that because why? Why is it such an enormous part of the Bible? Because not only is it huge in that in those books of Moses, and the building instructions are given twice. And there's loads about what to do with it. But the prophets constantly go back to that. And the apostles, everything they say, even that in Hebrews, they're, but always they just say, what Jesus is, he's like, he is, and then the language of that tabernacle is used all the time. So it's as if the Lord's like, listen, get this into your head, and it's a visual model, people can get it, Kids can understand it. I mean, since we, over the years, we make little cardboard models of it and all sorts of things. And just to say, look, now you can see there's like a little room that represents heaven. Here's a, here's a bigger room that represents the earth. That's heaven and earth. Can you see there's a problem? Let's like put a little cardboard curtain in. That's the division between heaven and earth. Why is that? Do you see what I mean? Dead simple. Anyone can grasp it, but that's why he did it. It's a schoolmaster to explain reality. The because f- people go, "What's the universe?" People go, oh, "Well, what?" We-? To understand the universe, we need the hadron collider. I'm like, what a waste of time! Tabernacle, man, that'll take you to the heart. That takes you to the that that takes you to the heart of reality. The heart of reality that stuff does. The, this tabernacle stuff. That's the reason the science. Because of a tabernacle and Christians who, who've got this belief that the whole universe makes sense. It's reliable. It's rational. All these things. That's because of this stuff. The Hebron Collider is a footnote to the tabernacle. If, it's, if even. <laughs> so the living God set up this multimedia schoolmaster to lead his ancient people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the people in the Bible just keep referencing it. So in this first talk, we'll just take a moment to look at that general structure of it. Tomorrow's talk, we'll look at the high priest. So what to do with it and this one figure at the heart of it. And then in the third talk, we'll kind of look at like the sacrifices, offerings, festivals. Not all of that, but we'll select some of that. All right, what's older than the universe? What's older than the universe? Oh, nothing. Well, Exodus disagrees. If you've got your Bible, just have a flick to Exodus 25 and 26. This is a weird thing, and it's so obvious it's laughable. It's so obvious it's laughable. But it was years before I spotted this. And you, you'll laugh at me, because you're like, Paul, that is the most obvious thing in the world. You're obviously ridiculous. Why don't you just read the Bible? I know, it's a, it's a good criticism. Look, this is so obvious, it's stupid, right? So, we're all happy, because remember in the Hebrews reading, it was talking about the tabernacle, where there's the most holy place, that room that represents heaven, and then the holy place that's like earth and the bigger, you know, the... so. There's this model of the universe. We're all happy that that's what the tabernacle is. Yeah, basically. And it's surrounding, you know, if you want. That's a model of the creation. The heavens and the earth, right? Yeah. Even that took me a long time to go, oh yeah. Um, Right. That is Exodus 26. Can you see it? Exodus 26. That is the instructions to make a model of the universe. A symbolic model of the universe, like Hebrews says. Right, there it is. Look at chapter 25. The making, thr- the making stuff, there's instructions to make things before making a model of the universe. He's like, in chapter 26 he says make a model of the universe. But in chapter 25, he's had them make three things. He says he make an ark of the covenant, make a table for bread to go on, and make an oil lampstand. Make them, and then he says, verse 39 of Exodus 25, no, uh, verse 40 of Exodus 25, see that you make these things according to the pattern shown in your mountain. So he actually wanted them to specifically make three pieces of furniture, stop, consider whether they'd been made correctly, whether they really represented the heavenly reality that Moses had been shown, right? And then he says, now, Exodus 26 verse 1, now make a tabernacle. Can you see? What's older, what can be, if the tabernacle represents the universe, how can you have anything before the universe? What could be older than even heaven? What could be there before the beginning of the universe? What could these three pieces of furniture represent if, in this sequence, they had to be built... And set up before the model of the universe was to be set up. I think we kind of probably are beginning to get an answer to that, aren't we, in our heads? Because, as the Genesis one says, in the beginning, God, God created the heavens and the earth. God's older than the universe. From everlasting to everlasting. Before the foundation of the world, the scriptures tells us things. Christ was slain in the purposes of God before the foundation of the world and so on. The living God, from everlasting to everlasting, in eternity, before the world began, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit were together, sharing for infinite ages the life of God. At Christmas time we sing that song, Do you know that big... What's that word? the Father's love begotten. Uh, the world's began to be... Of the Father's love begotten. Before, see, before the world's began to be, the Son is begotten of the Father. And there's this wonderful divine family that is the one living. And of course, in our interaction with Islam, this is so important that before the universe began, there's this lovely divine family of love. And the Father begets the Son in the power of the Spirit. For infinite ages, and they revel in that divine life, and then there's a universe. And so, the schoolmaster, here, the Lord says, through the law, make an ark of a covenant. Ark of the covenant. Make a table for bread, and make a lampstand, an oil-powered lampstand. And then stop. Check that you've made those things correctly. And can you imagine that? That he wanted them, before they'd even made a model of the universe, to stop and consider these three, before the universe comes into view, before they consider the nature of the reality, of the universe, before they consider the nature of the universe, they are to consider the nature of the living God. That is so profound, so true. Of course that's true. The Ark of the Covenant, the Table of Presence, the Lampstand, they represent the Father, Son and Holy Spirit as the Scriptures and we'll look at that now for a moment. And philosophers have argued, and scientists I guess too, about the centre of the universe. Is it planet Earth? Is it the sun? Maybe there's no centre at all. You know, all that sort of stuff. Well, the Bible shows us, well, actually there is a centre to reality. Uh, And it is far above and beyond the tiny human empires and the little galaxies. It is the throne of the Father. That defines the centre of reality. That's why when Jesus comes to pray... And in that Sazra book on the Lord's Prayer that I, it's, I think is that available or somewhere? I think it is the Sazra book on the Lord's Prayer. Sazra people, awesome. Uh, there's a Sazra book on the Lord's Prayer that. And that meditation that when the disciples, they didn't ask Jesus, "How do you walk on water?" or "How do you feed everybody and stuff like that." They just said the only real "how" question they ever said is, "How do you pray? How do you pray?" Presumably because they could see or sense that if only we could pray like that, everything else is sorted. And so he said, okay, when you pray, do this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. As this to say, don't get into anything else in prayer till you're really clear on that. Where's the center of reality? And that's what this is about. Um, The Father, because he created the heavens and the earth. By his will, they were created and are sustained. All life and meaning flows out like a river from the Father's throne. Whenever in Scripture, whenever anybody sees into heaven, the very first thing they see, whether it's Daniel, Ezekiel, John, whatever, the very first thing they see is a throne. With someone seated upon it, the father seated upon a throne surrounded by angels. Daniel 7, 9 to 10. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing, clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. What a scene! What a scene! The throne room of the Father. Jesus says, start there. That is the center of reality. John sees the same thing. Revelation 4, 2-3. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Psalm 99, verse 1. The Lord reigns let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Isaiah 37:16. King Hezekiah prays, O Lord Almighty God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You made heaven and earth. So the Ark of the Covenant, made famous by Indiana Jones, of course, is, um, was in the holiest of holies. That inner room. Now, initially, they just set these three pieces of furniture out. They're not in anything. They just are. And that's power. I find that tremendously moving. The idea that they just are. They're not in any universe. They just are. And it's as if he says, now, just check that out for a bit. Get your head around that. Because there's no. They don't need a universe to be in. They just are. And this one piece is the Ark of the Covenant. And that later gets positioned in the heavens room. (laughs) Because even the heavens were created. Heaven was created. It hasn't always existed. And so when the heavens are created, then the Father establishes his throne in that most holy place. The highest heaven. The room, you know, the Daniel 7, Revelation 4 thing. Because that Ark... Of the covenant represented the throne of the Father at the centre of reality. That our Father who art in heaven. The angels and the church in heaven cry out to the Father on the throne. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things. By your will they were created. And just that sense, isn't it? Because that Ark of the Covenant, you'll see... When they move it about, and it comes up in Samuel and things, they refer to the Ark of the Covenant and they'll say the Lord sits enthroned between the cherubim. Because you remember the lid of it has angels, doesn't it, at either side. Like, and, the, and there's just like a space between them in which symbolic, there the Lord sits enthroned between the cherubim. And so it's a throne, really, the Ark of the Covenant, defined by these these cherubim. And then it's placed that throne in a heavenly room later. And just, you know, I find it so overpowering, that sense, that this wonderful Father, who is full of love and goodness, is seated on the throne, and it's the Father's throne. And that not even the smallest creature can fall to the ground without the Father's will. Every hair on our heads I know, you're thinking, well, that's what, so what? <laughs> yeah, I can count to five. No, but for everybody in this room, even people who've actually got her, um, that it, you see, that, I wouldn't believe that. He, the father counts every hair on his, on his people's heads. And if someone else had said that, you'd go, well, not really. Jesus said that. Jesus said it. You can't mess with that. Jesus said it. It must be true. And why would he bother? He is that bothered. And he's on the throne of all reality. We can live each day with joy, free from worry, because the Father is enthroned between the cherubim in the highest heaven. I wasn't going to mention this, because I thought we may have the time, but I, I'm going to risk it, because you can always just like always push me over in a minute. If, if, but I'm going to risk this, because I know you're Bible people. So this bit, I, I, you know your Bibles, I know that. If you were to flip open the Ark of the Covenant, what's inside? It's not a pop quiz, I, I, we'll, we'll say what it is. Because um, nobody's ever seen the Father's face, right? No one at any time. Uh, Even though, um, is it Philip who says, Jesus, just show us the Father, then we'll be satisfied. As if he's saying, look, it's great to know you, Jesus, but I think there's something better than you. There's a higher revelation than you, Jesus. Can you give us that? Because if you give us that, then we're satisfied. And then, do you remember, Jesus is like, oh, Philip, I've been with you so long and you just don't get me, do you? If you've seen me... You've seen everything that the Father is. Or as it says in Colossians, Jesus is the fullness of deity in bodily form. He's God at full strength. There is nothing more to see in God than we see in Jesus. Nothing. And so, if you were to flip open the Ark of the Covenant, in the Indiana Jones film... What, it's like, I don't know, all sorts of uh, like screaming spirits come out of something, isn't it? And the Nazis get killed. It's an amazing scene, but it's not accurate. Um, <laughs> that isn't what's in the Ark of the Covenant. Because um, <laughs> you think, okay, so if that throne, the Ark of the Covenant, is like the, the Father's throne... So inside that, you're like, inside the Father's throne. Oh my goodness, what must be in there? That's the ultimate thing. If only we could see inside the Ark of the Covenant. It's like, oh yeah, you can. I'll tell you what's there. There is, <laughs> there is three things: manna, Aaron's staff, the Ten Commandments. What's the point of those things? Bread from heaven, the high priest's blooming, flourishing rod, and this expression of perfect righteousness. would Who do those things make you think about? Bread from heaven, the high priest's f- fruitful staff, and this expression of perfect righteousness. Well, they all make you think about Jesus, don't they? He says, I'm bread from heaven. And then we're going to tomorrow think about him as the high priest. So we won't say too much about that now. But you are already going, of course he's the high priest. He said it in Hebrews. Yeah, I know. I'm not, uh, yeah but we'll look at it in detail tomorrow. So obviously he's the high priest, and that rod that blossoms into life, and then the bread from heaven, and then the Ten man this perfect expression of, of righteousness from the heart of the Father. It's all there. So it turns out you flip open the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, inside the very throne that the Father sat on, and it's like, Jesus, He's the. the he, he is the thing, but he is what's in the heart of the Father. If the Father says, I'll show you all my secrets... It's Jesus. Everything he's got is treasured up inside Jesus. Everything. And then he's like, look, isn't he brilliant? Listen to him. He, I, I love him. That's how the father is. That's just a little footnote to think about that, but we'll come to where Ron's thing tomorrow. The Ark of the Covenant then. The father. The Ark. The inner room represents heaven. The table of presents in the outer room with the oil lampstand. And just think about that for a minute. Because you'll know, again, Bible people, you know this stuff. There's the three piece of furniture. Now we know what's going to happen is the Ark of the Covenant's going to be in that inner room. And then the the table of bread, presents, and the oil are in the, the outer room. And then in between them, in between the Ark of the Covenant and the lampstand and the table, there's going to be this curtain. Let that sink in for a minute. So there was the Trinity before the universe began, just completely together sharing life, uninterrupted joy. Together. And then... First of all, actually, the tabernacle is built as one room. And then the Lord again says, now consider that. Have you made it correctly? As if he's reminding us, it wasn't supposed to have a division, you know. The curtain isn't part of the original plan of the universe. There isn't supposed to be a divide between heaven and earth. There isn't supposed to be a barrier between the living God and humanity. There isn't supposed to be that and so it's the furniture then a structured room but no curtain and then in the third phase of the building curtain and bronze altar that's a lovely little thing isn't it as if he says now here's the living God stage one stage two here's the universe no problems all good not divided stage three ah problem problem Sin, evil, death, disease, demons, curtain, divide heaven and earth. But the Lord says, I don't, wait, I don't want you only thinking about that curtain. You must, I, as, as soon as you build that, also build a bronze altar. Isn't that awesome? He's saying, I don't want you thinking about the problem without realising I've got a solution. Don't, I don't want you worrying about this without knowing i've got it sorted i know how to turn the curtain down isn't that beautiful in in section three he he could have said i will just have a section three about the problems of the universe and then section four can be answers that's not the way the lord does it problem solution jesus cross he doesn't want us like living in, in in terror he wants us to flee straight to Christ. So I love that. There isn't even a moment where you ha- we have to face death and sin without knowing the altar. That's a thought to think. I haven't really got that. But, right. But See, I'm terrible for going off on tangents. You've got to stop that. Uh, no, I have. Yeah, I've got to stop that. You're right. Is you provoking me? No, it isn't. I take responsibility. So, um... There's the Trinity. There's the universe. The the Father is in the most holy place, the highest heaven. But the Son and the Spirit effectively get sent on the other side of the curtain. That is freaky, isn't it? Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they say, well, you've you've messed up now. You're on your own. You made your bet. Lie on it. Die on it. You're on your own. That's not what happens. Genesis 3 and 4. You've got to leave the garden of God. Out. And there's a wall of fire guarded by cherubim angels with swords to make sure you cannot come back to the fountain of life. Out. There's Cain, Abel. You remember what happens? Well, I, well, Cain kills Abel. I hope that doesn't spoil the story for anyone. That's what, that's what happens. But, it says, the Lord came to speak to Cain and said, why are you downcast? You, you don't give in to sin. Do you remember In other words, he's like, you're in exile, I'll come and join you. You'll need me. Isn't that Amazing. Chapter 3, get away, out. Chapter 4, I'm with you in exile. I'll talk to you. I'll tell you what you need. Don't go into... Isn't that awesome? He's on this side of the curtain with us, full of the power of the Spirit. He joins us in exile. And then he appears to people, preaches to them, wrestles with them, whatever he needs to do, but he's joined us in exile. So the fact that on the cross, he doesn't just join us in exile, but he goes to hell with us. Of course, essentially he said he was going to do that from chapter 4 of Genesis when he joined us in exile. In principle, he said, I'm with you to the bitter end, even if it takes us to hell. That's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. I'm staying with you. You stay with me and we'll get through this. Because I'm coming with you into exile. That's all there. It's beautiful. It's it's emotional. So there's the table of presents. Twelve loaves of bread. Representing the whole of the ancient church. Carried on a table. Bread of course makes us think about God the Son. Jesus Christ. He claims himself, declares himself to be the bread of heaven. And every time we, we break bread together, it's him, isn't it, we're thinking about him. Bread! Of course it represents him. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven into exile with you. If anyone eats of this bread... He'll live forever. John six. We don't need to spend time on that. The golden lampstand, beautiful. It wasn't just functional; it's beautiful. Bright lamp fueled by olive oil to each of its seven branches. It had to be crafted in such a way that it looked like a living plant with flowers and buds and everything. Its oil had to be constantly refreshed, so its light was always burning. It was this tremendous celebration of light and life, as if it was alive and always burning. Just as the ark shows the Father in heaven, the table, Jesus carrying his church, the lampstand represents the Holy Spirit giving us light and life. And in Revelation chapter 4 verse 5, the seven blazing lamps that, that surround the throne of God is the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Do you know that verse? Yeah. And it's powerful. There were no light sources in the tabernacle apart from this lampstand. No light or life apart from the Spirit of God given to us by Jesus. In the Bible, of course, the three kinds of people anointed with oil, priests, Um, we'll see that plenty, Exodus 29, 7 for one example, but loads of that. Prophets, well, one example of that, 1 Kings 19.16, uh, Elijah to Elisha. And Kings, a few examples of that, most famously Saul and David, 1 Samuel 10, 1 to 10 for an account of that. And the, so the oil poured onto these characters showed that, what was that about? It's showing that they needed the light and life of the Holy Spirit to do this work of being a prophet, a priest, a king. They need the life and light of the Spirit to do such work. And then, of course, we are thinking, Christ is all of that, and he's filled with the Spirit. Again, yeah, All right, let's leave that. Now, when Samuel poured oil over David from this little hip flask, the Holy Spirit immediately gave him light and life it says 1 samuel 16:13 samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brethren and from that day on the spirit of the lord came upon david in power so it's literally just there oil spirit so and and that just reminder that we need the spirit of god to have the light of god we so we need the spirit of god to have the light of god meaning we need the spirit to understand Because our eyes are darkened, our hearts are darkened, our minds are darkened. And the fact is, there is the Spirit burning bright. And we need the Spirit to understand the world, ourselves, the living God. Without Him, we're confused, we're lost, we're aimless, we're stupid. Never sure of who we are, where we are, anything. And then light, but we also need the Spirit of God to live. People often say to me, like, I often have to say to people, because they go, church? What's all that rubbish? What's church? I always say, oh, it's where you learn to be a human being. It's where you learn to live life. Uh, And they're like, what? What are you saying? Oh, well. But that's a really good simple definition. It's where, you, live to, it's where you, you learn to be a human being, where you learn to live. You can only live when we're filled with the Spirit. Other than that, as Jesus says, dead. We're just dead. We're just sort of kind of existing. But you don't live without the Spirit. We need the Spirit to live as Jesus lived, to put our old life to death, put on our new life. Without him, we're enslaved to deceitful desires controlled by selfish ambitions left with mere existence. Do you remember the prophet Zechariah had a vision of the lampstand fueled by two olive trees? And he asked an angel, what's this? Um, the, the angel actually goes, do you not know what that is? <laughs> Which is kind of like, what's the matter with you? Do you not know what that is? And he's like, no, I don't know. And then the, answer, the explanation is, who knows the verse? Zechariah 4, it, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. That's the explanation of the lampstand. So that's the easiest bit of furniture in a way, because Zechariah goes, well, what's the meaning of the lampstand? And it just says, oh, the spirit. Zechariah 4, 1 to 6, that incident. So there it is. We're nearly done. I know Tony's about to say, get out, sit down immediately. Just let me do this one tiny last thing. Because one of the, I know someone will go, there were four pieces of furniture in the finished arrangement. Yeah? There's some people nodding like, exactly. Because, <laughs> okay, there were the three pieces of furniture that represents the Trinity before the, before the, the universe. Then they make tabernacle as a whole, no division. Then curtain altar. And then in the final phase, there's a fourth piece of furniture, an altar of incense, an incense burner. And in some ways, when everything else is arranged, the way of salvation and everything, then this little piece of furniture, an altar of incense, was to be placed At the very centre of the tabernacle, right against the curtain. If the inner room represents the highest heaven, and this outer room is like earth and the rest, this is to be on the very border of heaven and earth, this altar of incense, like as if it's almost in. And in fact, in Hebrews, it says it belonged to the inner room, doesn't it? It actually says that. If you, know some, Yeah, one or two people are like, oh yeah, it does. It actually says it belongs to the inner room, this, this altar of incense, even though it's technically on this side of the curtain. Um, what is it? What does that represent? It represents church. Because... Um, There's quite a lot of verses for this, but let's, so we don't take, well, two, I'll give two. Um, Revelation 5.8, the bowls of incense in heaven, the prayers of the saints. Malachi 1.11, the incense prayers go to God from the earth. It's the prayers of the saints, it's the saints, it's the church, it's the Christians, it's us. And he locates us. In the very centre of reality, and think about just the layout of the three pieces of furniture that are the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. There's the Father, say, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit, and right in the centre of those three that form a triangle, us. Us! In the centre of the life of the Trinity, on the border between heaven and earth. That's Us! We're in the world, but not of the world. It's all that. We're seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. It's all that stuff being displayed in this simple multimedia picture. Strangers in the world, citizens of heaven, looking at invisible things, even though we're surrounded by the visible. All that makes sense then. You're like, yeah, we're right. We're almost pushing through the curtain. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? The altar of incense in the heart of the life of God. As if they're surrounding us, the Trinity. are surrounding us and saying, you are the center of our life. And we go into exile, the Son and the Spirit, to surround you and keep you. And that when Peter says he's given us those very precious divine promises that we may escape the corruption that's in the world and, what does it say? Participate in the divine nature. Like, what? We can't share in the the very life of God. Yeah, yeah. It's there. In the layout of the furniture. Of course we do. It's, I think it's the climax of the whole thing. It's almost as if the point of the whole creation is church. In one sense, we said that the throne of God is at the center of the universe, but in another sense, everything's done for church. Last verse of Ephesians 1, isn't it? All for church. The marriage of the Lamb. Begins with that picture of marriage, the Bible, and moves and to get telling us it is in the end about marriage, and at the end it is, and the, the sense that the curtain's torn down and there we are. See, to the non-Christian, they look out at the universe, vast universe, and feel utterly meaningless. But it, we Look out and marvel how much God thinks of us. Amen.